We're going to turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 3 for the reading of God's Word. And I want to read a part of this chapter beginning at the verse number 26. Let us hear the Word of God. And when Joab was come out, of, come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Sarah, but David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly, and smote him there under the fifth rib, that he died for the blood of Azahel his brother. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there not fall from, fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. So Joab and Abishai his brother slew Abner, because he had slain their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab, and to all the people that were with him, rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the bear. And they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth. Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. And when all the people came to cause David to eat meat, while it was yet day, David swore, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else, till the sun be down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. Amen. And the Lord will bless the reading of His own Word. Could we again unite our hearts in prayer, and let's look to the Lord for the help that we need. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before Thee. We continue in Thy presence in the name of Thy Son. We thank Thee for every gathering of this, the Lord's Day. We bless Thee for these meetings arranged under Thy direction and Thy will. We pray, Lord, that in this opening time this evening of our gospel mission, that Thou wilt draw very near. We are resting on Thee, depending on Thee. We thank Thee for those who are assembled. We pray for those among us who are not saved. 
who are still in their sin and lost. We pray, Lord, that this would come over them, this awareness, this knowledge of their state, of their spiritual condition before God. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt arrest their minds, their hearts. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt bring a stillness over the whole gathering. We ask, O Lord, that Thou wilt put Thy hand upon preacher and hearer. We ask, O Lord, that the gospel will be proclaimed, that the warning note as it sounded will be borne home to many a heart, both in the building here and to other people online. O Lord, we're looking to Thee to move in these meetings, praying, O Lord, for Thy visitation, for the power of God, for the mighty intervention of the Lord in people's lives, arresting them, bringing them to a knowledge of their sin, drawing them to Christ, saving them through the preaching of the gospel of Thy grace. And so, Lord, answer prayer and abide with us now as we continue in Thy presence. For we ask all of this in the Savior's name and for His sake and for His eternal glory. Amen and amen. I want tonight to draw your attention to very well-known words in this chapter. They lie in both verse 33 and verse 34. The king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth. Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. David had a very high esteem for Abner, who was the cousin of King Saul and also the captain of Saul's army. In David's mind and estimation, therefore, Abner had reached a very high level with regard to ability and honor and courage. He was obviously a brilliant general, a fact that is recognized by David when he once paid a glowing tribute to Abner, and he said, Art not thou a valiant man? And who is like thee in Israel? Abner, therefore, was a military leader whom any king would have wanted to lead his army. And so when Abner was slain, and he was slain, of course, unrighteously and wickedly, when he was slain, David described his tragic death in the memorable words of verse number 38. He says there, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? Out of his esteem for Abner, the king then deemed it necessary that Abner would receive a state funeral. And at the command of David, that, at the command of David that is exactly what took place, as is shown to us in the words of verse number 31. There it says, David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, rend your clothes, gird you with sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the bier. In the details of Abner's funeral, the factor that stands out prominently is the lamentation that was led by David the king. You see, in a state funeral, the monarch in attendance would be expected to display very little emotion, really. 
but remains stoical and unmoved in his appearance and in his decorum. But David was no slave on this occasion at least to unfailing decorum. He displayed openly the grief of his soul as he stood at Abner's grave and he wept his bitter tears so much so that he moved the whole company of the people who were gathered there to a deluge of tears as well. And therefore that day, many were the tears that were shed over the death and over the burial of this man Abner. The most poignant part of David's grief was the pronouncement that he expressed in his own sorrow. He said, Died Abner as a fool dieth. Thy hands were not bound, as we read earlier there again, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. Now in his words, David's emphasis is on the nature and the circumstances of Abner's death, not only on the man himself, but the nature of his death, the circumstances of his death. David is not calling Abner a fool, but in character, for in character he was not a fool. He was a man with many qualities, we've already noted, a man highly esteemed, and therefore in his character, in his person, in his behavior, generally speaking throughout his life, he never could have been regarded as a fool. The thought is that the way he died was out of character with the pattern of his life. Abner essentially was brought into a situation in which his life was taken away when such should never have happened. It was as if his life was thrown away and thrown away at the hands of other men. And this is what moved David to such bitter and deep grief. Little wonder, therefore, that he lamented so deeply and so poignantly as these words reveal to us. David's grief over Abner's death was deep. It was real because there was a great tragedy in Abner's death. Just as there is a tragedy in the deaths of sinners who are suddenly and unexpectedly cut off and, in their case, lost forever. Tonight I want to draw to your attention several features about Abner's death that are real, that are very, very tragic, most tragic indeed. They are features that have much to teach us. They are features that serve as a warning to sinners present in this gathering tonight that you might ensure that the same features will not be true of your death. Because the point is, you and I are going to die someday as the Lord tarries. And oh, the tragedy of the matter when someone dies in a fashion that can only be counted as being tragic. And everyone who dies without the Lord, that is a tragic death. It's not so matter how the person dies or the circumstances, it's the state in which that person actually dies that comprises the tragedy that marks so many deaths 
of ungodly, sinful, unsaved, unprepared people. My dear friend, you are without Christ. You do not even claim to be saved. Now, leaving aside your debate or your argument about theology or about doctrine or about the Bible or what you consider yourself to be as a sinner uh, before God, you may not even accept that at all. You've got to understand that because you do not claim to be saved, you do not profess to be saved in the light of this book, if you die in that state, that will be a tragedy. I want to show you why from what we find in this account concerning Abner's death. Number one, Abner died because of deception. He died because of deception. Notice the final words of verse number 34. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fallest thou. Now the reference there is to, to wicked men is to Joab and his brother Abishai because both were Abner's murderers. Abner had killed their brother, but he killed their brother on the battlefield, and that made all the difference. His death was not like Abner's death. Abner was taken aside. Abner was dealt with in a very duplicitous way. And Abner was slaughtered by Joab along with Abishai, his brother. And therefore, there was deception in the whole matter of Abner's death. When we look at the words here, it says that he fell before wicked men. That also could be read as the marginal shows, children of iniquity or sons of iniquity. That shows the evil nature of Joab and Abishai. But in David's lament, he states that Abner fell before these wicked men, the inference being that they deceived him and then they slew him. And that's exactly what happened. In verse 27, it says this, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak to him quietly. It's all marked by, by pretense. The word quietly means peaceably. And so Joab gave the impression that he wanted a friendly word with Abner. Abner has been to Hebron. He has sat down with David. He has shown himself to be an upright man. He's willing to take a stand with David. He's willing to be on the side of David. He is coming away from all of Saul's uh, history and all that happened at that time in that man's awful career. He's leaving it all beside him. He's going to stand alongside David. And David sent him away in peace and all is well. The king has made a decision. This man is a righteous man, an upright man. He's prepared to stand with me. And then Joab, out of his bitter enmity for Abner, he takes him aside as if he wants to have a chat with him some kind of a little talk in a quiet manner. Then he drew his weapon and he slaughtered him. But the point is, it all happened through deception. Now, in murder, always deceit is involved. The murderer plans a strategy as he sets out to take life. He sets a snare he lures his victim, whatever he does, and all the details, and he employs stealth. 
in order to shed the blood of the person who becomes his victim. Joab here put on a very friendly face, as you can see from the narrative. He took Abner aside to speak to him, as it were, in a friendly way, but secretly he was planning his murder. He also concealed his weapon, because if you read verse 27, there's no mention of a weapon. Even in the act of committing the murder, and obviously there was one, but Joab had kept it hidden, most likely a, a short dagger of some kind that he could quickly pull out and use as his, his instrument of committing his murder. Abner's death, therefore, seemed to be very, very far away. All seemed to be going well for him. He had gained the confidence of the king who had sent him away in peace, as already indicated. Joab himself appeared on the scene acting in a very peaceful manner. And therefore, it would have seemed that death was far off. And yet, it was only moments away. And he dies in the midst of and in the atmosphere of deceit. Duplicity, a cover-up, and therefore how tragic his death was because of deception. In every murder, deceit is involved. Let me also say that in every murder, the presence of Satan is there. Keep in mind that Satan is described in the Word of God as a murderer. Furthermore, as the father of it and that he also employs deception in his vile campaign of the murder or the ruin of the souls of men and women, and even young people. And my friend, that's how the Bible describes the old devil himself, this evil spirit called Satan. You see, Satan is the instigator of both murder and lying. Physical murder cannot be carried out, as I've said, without deception. And therefore, when you think about that, the great deceiver himself is there at work. He's in the scene. He is lurking somewhere. Every time a murder is committed, that is true. And we should never forget that. We know about Abner's death and every such death in the physical realm What we've noted about all that is true, you see, in the spiritual and eternal deaths of sinners. Man's subjection to spiritual and eternal death is the result of the murderous and the subtle design of Satan. I want to take you to the words of John 8 and verse number 44. That's a very powerful statement that came from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and He said this on this occasion to the Pharisees, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. And abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Notice those words, a murderer from the beginning. The word murderer means manslayer. And the word beginning here is not the devil's own creation, 
Rather, it is that time when the fall of the devil took place and immediately his heart is filled with murder and filled with design against man because remember that this all took place in a very short time, all of creation. It happened in six days. Somewhere in those six days, the devil was created, but then he was a holy archangel. And then on the sixth day, man is created in the image of God. And by the time man is created, the devil's already fallen. And the devil has his eyes set on man to destroy the human race. And from the very beginning, as the Word of God tells us, as Christ tells us, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, from the time of his own apostasy and his own fall, uh, which would have happened, as I said, very soon after the creation of man. And therefore, from the time of his own fall, the devil became a manslayer. And that became very evident because he had his hatred set on man especially. He could not touch God, you see. He has been cast out of heaven. That's when this happened. The devil been cast out of heaven. It happened right there in the early stages of world history. He's cast out of heaven. He can't touch God. He can't enter back into heaven. So who does he target? He targets the person, the being, who was made in the image of God. Namely, man filled with a terrible hatred for man. You see, you take the name Satan, one of the devil's names. It comes from the Hebrew word sitna that means hatred. And as soon as he fell, this inveterate hatred, this murderous hatred for man, for Adam, filled his being. Because man, as I said, is made in the direct likeness and image of God. And therefore, Satan, envying man, made in God's image, detested God's image in man. And therefore, he strikes at man in a vain effort to strike at God. But whenever the devil led man into temptation and into sin, what was he doing? He was bringing man into a state of death. That's the sense of the Savior's words, a murderer from the beginning. That is when death came in. It came in as the old serpent employed his deceit and his hatred and his vile opposition to God, venting it on man and therefore bringing man down, and therefore he became the murderer of man, and he became then the deceiver of man. And all that follows on from that moment, that dark moment in world history, all of this flows from that time. And that means that Satan effectively slew man, spiritually speaking. He became the inflictor of death on man. The Bible says that the devil, in a certain way, has the power of death. Why deal with these issues? Because, at least indirectly, they are in view in the murder of Abner. And they are in view in the murder of every human being physically. But my dear friend, they are in view 
in the spiritual slaughter of multitudes of souls that leave this world and go out into God's eternity and are lost forevermore in the depths of hell. The devil, the hater of man, the deceiver of man, the murderer of man, spiritually, do you not see all this here in Abner's death? Joab hated Abner. Joab deceived Abner. And then Joab destroyed Abner, brought him down, cut him down. And all of that shows to you tonight the awful danger that your soul is in. That's the first lesson we learn from Abner's death, that Abner's death was a death that came about because of deception. Now, it is a fact, my friend, that whether you are aware of it or not, you are living in deception some way or another. You may think that you do not need a Savior. You may tell yourself that you are good enough. You may cling to the vain notion that you haven't done anybody any real harm in life, or maybe not even at all in life, and that you haven't a good neighbor and upright and moral and maybe somewhat religious and interested in these things of God somehow or other, and you tell yourself, all is well. Do you not understand that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight? The point is, my friend, that you have at least a measure of deception over your soul. You're already darkened by your own sin. You're blinded by your own sin. And then to make matters worse, the devil has deceived you. And the devil's objective is to destroy you. How serious that is. The devil's goal from the very beginning was to slay the human race spiritually and bring every member of humanity down to everlasting ruin, and only those who become the children of God are going to be delivered from that ploy, that scheme, that plan of the devil. And we thank God that there is a plan of grace that counteracts the work of the devil. There is deliverance for souls from Satan's hatred and deception and murderous intentions. And yet, my dear friend, you sit in this gospel meeting tonight, and you are in danger. Grave, deep danger. You know, the Bible gives us the final story as far as Satan is concerned. Revelation 20, and the verse number 10, it says this, And the devil that deceived them, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. There's his end. It is hastening on. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12 that the old devil, he is filled with this awful dread because he knows he has but a short time. He knows all that. And yet he's working all the while to destroy your soul and bring you down to everlasting ruin. But there's the end of the devil, the devil that deceived them, cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. But listen, my friend, to the last words of that chapter. Revelation 20, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What's the point of that? What's the message of that? Every sinner who dies without
Christ, deceived and blinded, slaughtered by Satan spiritually, morally, brought down to eternal ruin, is going to join is going to join the one who planned and schemed their destruction in the same lake of fire, in the same eternal ruin, there forever under the damnation of their sin, under the destruction that their ways have brought upon them and Satan has foisted upon their lives. This is the final end. And sinner, you need to awaken up to this. This is where you're headed. This is what you learn in the first place from Abner's death. Abner came to death because of deception. The next time, the next point I want to mention is that Abner died as one who was defenseless. Because in verse 27 we are told where Abner actually died. If you look there, you will see it very carefully in, in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Where exactly did Abner die? It tells us in verse 27, when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly. Notice the words, in the gate. He's at the gate of the city, and the city is Hebron, and that city is one of those six cities of refuge that God Himself had, had set up in the land of Israel. As we know from studying these early books of the Bible, there were these cities of refuge. And here's Abner now, and he's at the very gate of one of those cities, this city called Hebron. He's just a step away from safety. All he should need to do here is step over the threshold. He'll be into Hebron, and Joab dare not touch him. But you see, he dies short of the shelter. He dies as one who has no defense because he's not in the city of refuge. That, no doubt, is certainly one of the outstanding reasons why David lamented him so deeply. He was just a step away from the city of refuge. We see in that another most lamentable matter regarding the eternal ruin of many sinners. Not only are you deceived, my friend, face that. You are deceived. If you think you don't need salvation, you're deceived. If you think you can make it to heaven on your own way, you are deceived. I hope God's bringing you out of that. I hope that light's beginning to dawn in your soul. If you entertain those thoughts, get rid of them. You're a sinner before God like all the rest of us. You're on the wrong road. You're in, you're in great danger. You'll perish in your sin one of these days. Quickly the end will come and you'll go down to hell. But the point is, when you come to die, you'll have no defense because you haven't stepped over the line that would take you to safety as is pictured and typified in this matter of the cities of refuge. How tragic it is, how lamentable it is when sinners perish just short, as it were, of the refuge that there is in Christ. 
they come up to the gate, as it were, like Abner. They know the gospel. They maybe are troubled, concerned about these things, maybe aware of their sin at long last, and thinking about these matters and gaining some kind of an interest in the soul and its well-being and eternity and judgment and death and all of that, and, and getting a knowledge of Jesus Christ, the blessed Savior, coming to some, some knowledge of the truth of the gospel. Ah, my friend, is that where you are? You might be up now, as it were, at the very gate of safety, but you're not across the threshold. You're still outside. Therefore, you're still in danger. You see, those cities of refuge that I mentioned that are in view here in terms of Hebron being one of them were very typical of Jesus Christ and the refuge that is found in Him for sinners. That's why those cities were appointed. If you go through the book of Numbers and into Joshua and other parts of that section of the Old Testament, you will find detail after detail about the cities of refuge that make it clear that they pointed to Jesus Christ. They were one of the ways in which God taught the gospel to the people of that day. For example, they were appointed by God. It was God who gave this command, appoint that city and that city and all six of them, because God is the one who is the author of the gospel. They were appointed before Israel ever entered the land of promise. What does that tell us? That before there is any need in a sinner's life, there's a Savior already appointed by God. There's someone set apart by God to save our souls. They were placed on hills, easily seen by the one who was running for his life. There's no obscurity in the gospel. Those cities were set on hills all through the land. No one could miss seeing a city. Whatever one he was closest to, there it is. It's on that hill. That's why you have in Matthew chapter 6, or 5 is it, where the Lord talks about the church being a city set on a hill. It's designed to be a city of refuge in the sense that it can tell people about the Lord, about the blood, about the work of Christ, and you flee to Christ and you're saved. They were set on hills. Furthermore, they were easy of access. The Lord gave the command that to every city a special avenue was to be built so that no one who was coming would be inhibited or stopped from reaching the gate and getting inside the city. They were available to Jew and Gentile both. The Word of God makes that clear. They were all located in the regions where the priests lived, the priests of Israel. That's very interesting. In fact, we find that when a man went into the city of refuge, he could leave it after the high priest had died. He could go on his way without any fear. What does that teach? That teaches very clearly when we get into Jesus Christ as our city of refuge, we get into one who has died for our sins, and therefore we can go on our way without fear, 
without any condemnation on us, without any threat of eternal ruin, we are delivered fully and entirely through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, there's something else about those cities. They had to be entered with urgency. It was not some kind of a dilly-dally approach that the person like Abner is to take, but rather hasten, run to the city of refuge. And my friend, every detail tells you about point after point after point of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the most outstanding ways in which we know that those cities remind us of the gospel or point us to Jesus Christ is what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 6. He says this concerning believers, concerning Christians. We have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. And in that statement in Hebrews 6, 18, Paul undoubtedly has in mind the city of refuge. And he says that the Christian is a person who has actually fled for refuge. Do you get a hold of that? Every saved person this meeting tonight, there was a time in your life when you began to understand your need and you felt your danger and you got to Jesus Christ and you entered in and now you're safe. But some sit here tonight and that's not true of you. You have never fled to Christ. Like Abner, you're still outside the gate. You are still in the place of danger. You're yet deceived, actually. You're completely lost. You might be close. You might be near. But friend, until you take that final step and get to Christ by faith alone, you could be right up at the door. But from there, go to hell. What a tragedy that would be. Abner, yes, he was deceived into his death. That was tragic. Abner was left defenseless because the, the defense was there. The safety was there. He's just a step from it. He's right at the gate. Abner has been taken by Joab and killed on the very threshold of the place of safety. And therefore, is it any wonder that David weeps, that David laments, that the people along with David shed their bitter tears? No wonder at all. It's an awful thing, an awful matter to be at a funeral, even as a preacher, to conduct a funeral, and as a person in the grave. And while God alone knows where that soul is, for He's the final judge, I cannot stand there, and I've had to do this, and say, This person, whoever it may have been, is now with the Lord because that person left no testimony as far as, the, as human knowledge is concerned. That's a tragedy. Oh, how easy it is 
for a minister to take a funeral from the person that that minister is burying got inside the city of refuge, got over the threshold at some point in life and clearly demonstrated that he or she was in Christ, safe forevermore. Final thought is this. Abner's death was marked by despair. It was marked by deceit. It was marked by defenselessness. But it was marked by despair. A terrible despair hung over the whole scene of Abner's death. The despair that marks death for the unsaved is therefore what I'm referring to now. Why is there such despair over the death of an unsaved person? Because that death is marked by finality. Regarding death, there is no possible reversal of it. There's no possible alteration of what has happened. It's all marked by finality. Death brings an end to your earthly existence. You're here for a certain time. God appointed your life. God has given you so many years to live. And you come to the end of that period, friend, and you die as you will. I want to tell you tonight, that's final. And if you've died without Christ, that is tragic. Because you're not coming back. There's no return. There's no reversal of that awful and terrible calamity. It cannot be reversed. There's no possibility of living again to hear the gospel once more, to be brought onto the sound of its truth or whatever you care to mention. That is all gone because death is final and death brings a close to all opportunities and to all gospel privileges. And therefore, what despair marks the death of a person who dies in sin? Sin unforgiven, sin still marked on the soul, sin charged to that person's account. What despair we feel when that is the case. You know, I remember a little lady down on Six Mile Cross, very quiet, ordinary country woman. But I can remember her to this day saying when friends or neighbors in the locality died that she immediately asked the question, where is that person? That was her first thought. Where is that person? And you, my friend, as Christians, as a, as a believing Christian minister, I want to say to you tonight that if you died tomorrow, if I had to do your funeral one of these days, that would be my first thought. Where is he? Where is she? And if you have died in your sin, again I say God is the judge of all, but if you've died in your sin, your soul would immediately be in hell. 
lost. Lost forever. And there is no coming back from that. There is no return from the dead, from the grave, in terms of coming back to live again in this world and so forth. It's all over. Opportunity gone, privilege ended, preaching silent, the awful silence of the grave, death. And therefore, what despair. Sinner, don't throw away your soul. Hasten to Christ right now. Seek Him with all your heart. There in your own seat, Christ is willing to save, able to save. Put your trust in Him as I draw this meeting to a close. Lest you die according to these marks that characterized Abner's death, the deceit and the defenselessness and the despair, and you go into God's eternity beyond hope forevermore. I urge you to come tonight. You may have been thinking about this, and dwelling on it, and, and you're troubled about it, and you're searching. Well, sinner, wait no more, but seek the Lord while He is to be found. Mr. Stewart and I will be glad to meet with you when the meeting is over, or one of us at least help you Open up the book. If you want, we will come to your home and meet with you there. But whatever way you choose, do not let this night go by without your seeking after Christ. May you take that step. May God write His Word in your heart. Let us bow together. Let us pray as we come to a close of the meeting itself, we are bowing in prayer, and I want everyone to be quiet and still in the closing moments. I want just to renew that invitation, urge upon you once more your need to seek the Lord and our willingness to help you and counsel you and direct you and may you avail yourself of that opportunity and this night seek out help for your soul. O oh God and Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will move, that the work will be done, that there will be a drawing of souls to the Lamb of God, to the place of refuge, to the finished work, to the great high priest who died and who rose again, and who is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by Him. Lord, work and power. 
glorify thine own name. Exalt thy Son. O Lord, we do pray that Christ will save the travail of his soul, coming to fruition tonight, and thereby be glorified. Hear and answer prayer. Bless these upcoming meetings this week and move on many hearts. We pray in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.